Hello, and welcome to Career-ish, a podcast that explores the idea of what it means to build a career while disproving that building one has to be intimidating, scary, or completely planned. My name is Richard Sylvester, and I want to thank you for joining me on episode one of the podcast. That's right, no more pre-episodes, no more warm-ups, and no more sound checks. We are off and running with our very first guest, and our very first interview is with the director of the Counseling Center here at K, the amazing Dr. Kinlana Ferguson. But before we get into today's episode, I want to let you know that this week's episode of Career-ish is brought to you by the East Asian Studies Department and their upcoming virtual panel discussion with four EAS alumni. Tune in on April 29th at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to watch it live. If you are unable to make it to the live event, a recording of the event will be posted online at a later date. Check career.kzu.edu for more details. That's career.kzu.edu. And one more time, that's career.kzoo.edu for more details. Now, before we get into the first episode, I want to talk to you a little bit about why we thought Kinlana would be the perfect first guest. So here's the thing. While we know it might seem like it, myself and the other staff in the CCPD, we aren't robots. We know that there's a global pandemic going on. We know that students have a lot in their minds, and probably thinking about your career isn't at the top of mind for most of you. We get that. So we thought that Ken Lana would be the perfect person to talk about tips and suggestions about things you can actively do right now to help you cope with the day-to-day stuff, and also to let you know about what the Counseling Center is doing to continue to support students through this incredibly challenging and difficult time, and also what mental health resources are available to help you right now. Now, as you can tell from the runtime of this episode, we did go longer than I anticipated, and I considered cutting the episode into two parts. I ultimately decided not to, since all the counseling resources were discussed during the back half of the episode, and if any listeners actually need them right now, delaying them by an additional week didn't make sense. Also, with the pandemic going on, I know you all are at home right now and need something to do, so why not listen to my show? It's not like you can go anywhere. But in all seriousness, personally, I like listening to long podcasts. I listen to multiple shows per week that are over two and a half hours long, and I like that. But I understand that you might not. And if you prefer shorter episodes, I'd love to hear your feedback. You can comment on the social media posts advertising this episode. You can find us both on Facebook and on Instagram at KZUCCPD. Drop us a comment and let us know how you think we can improve. Do you prefer shorter episodes? Do you think my voice sounds like a bunch of nails put into a blender? I don't know, you might, but leave us a comment and let us know what you think. So the last three things I'll say before I play the interview are 1. If we really need the mental health resources, I will put a timestamp in the show as to when we start that part of the conversation, and you can skip ahead directly to that part. 2. During the conversation, Kinlana mentions the National Suicide Hotline as a resource for students in immediate crisis, but didn't have the number offhand. In case you need it, that phone number is 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. I'll also put a link 
and include that number in the show notes. Third, and lastly, you're going to notice that during the interview, I don't sound as clear as I do right now. There were some last-minute technical issues, and I wasn't able to use the professional mic I'm using right now. I ask that you please be patient with me, and if you listen to episode zero, when I listed my various job responsibilities, you'll remember none of them included sound engineer. I'm still learning how to do this and teaching myself as I go, so I appreciate your patience as the show undergoes some growing pains while I learn. But that's all I have to say for now. I'll be back to check in after the interview. So after a short musical break, the next voices that you will hear are me and the incredible Dr. Kinlana Ferguson. Be right back. So my guest for today is uh, Dr. Kinlana Ferguson. She works as a uh, the director of the Counseling Center here on campus. And I'm really excited to have this conversation with her since we had the idea to even start this. So, uh, Kenlana, welcome to my show. Hello, thanks for having me. No, I really thank you for doing this. I know it's a little bit unconventional what we're trying to do <laughs> here. So I appreciate you working with us as we try to do something new. Not a problem, my pleasure. Um, so right off the bat, I guess the very first question I'm going to ask you is let's like, you know, as we're all doing this social distancing thing, how's working from home been for you? Um, I'm kind of tracking how this has been for me kind of day by day. Um, so um, at the beginning of it all, um, it was pretty stressful. Our center needed to um, go remote. So that part was a bit challenging, making sure all those parts were taken care of, making sure that we were doing things um, up to standard, our ethical standards, our legal standards, making sure our technology was okay. Um, so that part had been pretty stressful. Now we're at the point where all those fundamentals are taken care of, the technology is taken care of. So we're moving into seeing clients and uh, back to some of the things that we were doing before. So I feel more grounded now. Um, day by day, I feel more and more grounded getting back to our usual activities. Um, overall, emotionally, it's gone from stress to uh, gratitude and everything in between. <laughs> so um, today has been a good day. Yeah, I definitely can agree with that. I know personally, um, as somebody who is an introvert and isn't one to necessarily spend a lot of time out of the house and hanging out mm -hmm. and doing a whole bunch of stuff, this transition, like while I want to be um, respectful for to all the people that are really kind of going through it and it's a lot for them. For me, it's kind yeah. of been pretty easy. I'm like, uh -huh. well, uh, so let me get this straight. I can work from home. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I still work for an employer that um, we're blessed to continue to paying us and still working from home. So uh -huh. the bread is coming in and I don't have to be around the general public. Like, oh, great. <laughs> I have everything that I need. So, um. <laughs> yeah, I've had those days, too, where there were no interruptions um, in what 
when I'm trying to do things that are kind of like policies or procedural things or just reading and um, to be able to do that, I feel really grateful um, just to have the opportunity to do that without too many other interruptions that we typically experience in the center. Um, so not that clients ever bother me, um, but it's nice to have some of that downtime. No, I get it. I mean, I was yeah. just talking with uh, my supervisor this morning um, and we were having a general staff meeting. And one of the things we were saying is that like us as a staff, you know, we're very fortunate to work with uh, people who we genuinely get along with and like as uh -huh. human beings and just like hanging out. And one of the things that is kind of gone is that like just being able to kind of like pop into somebody's office and just like, right. hey, man, do you have a quick question? Let me ask you uh -huh. something. Uh -huh. um, on the other hand, like, I'm so much more productive working from home. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. You know, there are some trade-offs. I do miss seeing my people. <laughs> this is actually going pretty well, so. Uh -huh. uh, I agree. I agree. I agree. So as we get this thing started, so the whole idea um, for me doing this show is to talk with people about their career journeys and kind of how they wound up to the place where they're at now in their career. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, in preparation for this show, I intentionally did not do any uh, research on your background. I didn't look you up oh. or anything. So like okay. all this is going to be new to me just as it is with um, the audience listening. Uh, so the mm -hmm. first question I ask you um, is, I guess let's go all the way back to the beginning, to the beginning. Like where's home okay. for you? Home for me is Muskegon Heights. So it's about hour and 15 minutes um, from Kalamazoo. Oh, sure. um, and I got to uh, Kalamazoo, um, I came to Kalamazoo to attend Western Michigan University. I received a scholarship to Western when I was in my eighth grade um, okay. and a full tuition scholarship. And um, I, so for every summer um, after the eighth grade, I was also, I visited um Western each summer for Upward Bound. So I was mm -hmm. pretty familiar with Kalamazoo um, by the time I arrived here after graduation. So the scholarship kind of basically for me determined where I was going to go. Um, I didn't come from a family of means. So um, that was kind of my ticket to college. I knew I would go to college. Academically, I did very, very well. Um, but you go where the money is. Uh, and um, so that's what happened. I got accepted into a couple other colleges, but um, this is where the money was. So that's how I landed in Kalamazoo. Um, so as somebody who, I guess, um, I didn't realize that you were a Michigander. So as somebody mm -hmm. also who has lived in Michigan for not all my life, but for most of my life, like, how do you feel about Kalamazoo? Because I will simply say, like, I've only transplanted about five years ago or so, mm -hmm. uh, maybe six years. Oh, wow, it's longer than I thought. But anyway, mm -hmm. like, I really like it. Um, mm -hmm. I always tell people, like, the thing that's really cool that you don't realize unless you actually live here is that, like, you have a lot of the amenities of a big city, but none of the traffic. So you can basically get <laughs> in about 15, 20 minutes, which I really, really love. Oh, I love that part. So I, I think one word that I uh, would use to describe Kalamazoo is um, content. I, mm -hmm. I think that's how I feel. Um, another one would be safe. Um, I say those two things because I had considered 
bigger cities, um, of course, I think, especially after every time I graduated uh, with another degree, I considered uprooting and moving. Um, and I carefully weighed, you know, that sense of safety and contentment with, you know, some of the hustle and bustle. And I think when, when I was younger, it was like having access to more things like a popping nightlife or yep. um, sports teams or more things to do. Um, but I think I always landed in that like safe kind of um, space where it was kind of like, I don't want to sacrifice safety. And for me, safety has to do with um, knowing that I can leave my house and arrive back at it in the same condition that it was in, um, traveling safety. And, um, you know, I can, my kid can walk around the neighborhood and I don't have to worry about too much. Um, you know, we still take precautions. Uh, so safety within neighborhoods, uh, so things like that. And then like we bike ride or I got a scooter and I could ride up and down the street with those things. Um, I always thought about like public transportation. If I needed to do that, I would have access to it. Um, or I could teach my kid how to use that without being too scared or worried. Uh, so things, different things like that I have, I've considered. Um, cost of living, I definitely considered. Um, oh, yeah. It is pretty reasonable to live here in Kalamazoo. And then where Kalamazoo is, I'm two hours from Detroit. I'm two hours from Chicago. So I can get to all the things that I need by traveling two hours. But a lot of the things I do for pleasure, I can do right here in town. Um, there's an arts community that I've accessed that I really, really like. Um, I'm in a sorority and we have plenty of members here and I have those connections. I have a really awesome church home. So my needs are pretty much met and I can be only an hour and 15 minutes from my hometown, which that's really important to me also. So I really, I feel really content in Kalamazoo. Um, I like it most of the time. Um, when I get bored, I head over to Chicago. Yeah, no. Like all those things are things that I completely agree with. And those are things that completely resonate with me. Like I definitely can understand how um, I guess the prime demographic for this audience, college students may feel a little bit differently um, sure. than we do because I think we're pretty close in age, mm -hmm. but you know, somebody who moved here uh, post 30, like, dude, I don't go anywhere. I don't do anything. I literally <laughs> I go to work. When I'm not at work, I run my few errands. After that, I come back home and I've like made like basically my home. Everything that I really could uh -huh. need for, for all of my hobbies and interests are kind of here. Uh -huh. And then all of my family lives in and around Chicago. So if I need to, I'm like, yeah, I'll just be on the road and in an yeah. hour and a half, I'll be in my grandmother's living room, you know? Absolutely. And a home cooked meal, I can have access to that really easy. So I, I do like that a lot. You know, plus, I mean, I live in uh, where I currently live. Um, I basically live in, even though Portage doesn't have downtown, I live in uh, the apartments close to um, the Mall Drive and Westridge. Yeah. And basically, like, for all intents and purposes, I live downtown of my city. And uh -huh. so it's just like, I mean, Chick-fil-A is like a five-minute drive. <laughs> Right here, so it's kind of like, uh, I mean, I don't know how much more you need to ask. Um, well, we live near each other because I'm down, I'm a little bit more, I, I'm near Celery Flats. Um, oh, yeah. yep, so we're again like near downtown, like it takes me what three minutes to get to Target. 
Oh yeah, totally. Man. Oh my gosh, <laughs> you literally live right around the corner from me. I do. We're close by. Um. So anyway, um, back to uh, your career journey. Mm-hmm. So you're a freshman. You get to Kalamazoo. You have experience with the city a little bit. Uh, you start at Western. Did you at that point in time know that you actually wanted to be a professional therapist? No. So I started um, school with the, my ambition was to become a dentist. So I wanted to be a dentist. That was the the first thing I chose. And this is kind of funny because I say the first thing. Um, And as I reflect back on this, this is, this is something that I think uh, is important for folks to hear, young folks to hear. I, um, started taking sciences, classes in the sciences, um, in preparation for a major in pre-dentistry. And I was a, um, I graduated like number three in my class and I was used to really getting good grades and achieving was, um, one of my top values achievement was at the time. And, um, I struggled in those entry-level science classes. I had never gotten a C in my life. Um, and I think I could have tolerated the C if I didn't study, but I got a C studying hours and hours and hours and hours a day. Um, and I think it just started to, uh, get to me emotionally. Um, I really started doubting myself and I didn't have a good sounding board. My parents, I was for, I'm first generation. My parents did not go to college. Um, and of my siblings, I was, um, all of my siblings have now gotten college degrees, but I was still the first, even with my older siblings. Um, so I didn't have a really good sounding board, people to say like, that's okay. Um, nobody to talk to me about weeder courses. Um, being at a bigger school, bigger-ish school, I didn't have the access to my advisor to really talk with. And I don't know if I would have also been really honest as a person who was used to getting straight A's. I don't know if I would have told anyone I was struggling, but I was. I passed the classes, but I thought to myself, like, if I got to work this hard for a C, is it worth it? You know, if yep. I, if that's what I'm going to be getting, um, should I consider something else? So I left that. I kind of, I kind of just kind of counted myself out. Didn't think that I could be successful in the classes that were before me. So <laughs> this is kind of funny to me now. So I, I went from pre-dentistry to interior design was the next thing I chose. <laughs> and oh my my, I know, right? I was just like, let me just do something creative. So my mom said, um, sorry, you're not getting a college degree to do something to mix colors. So that's what those <laughs> intro classes were about was mixing paint and like recreating fabric designs and stuff. And she was like, oh, no, that's not going to happen. So and then my mom's a seamstress. So she was like, you've been in that kind of stuff your whole life. You know how to do it. You don't need a degree. If that's something you want to do later, that's fine. You have the skill set. My mom taught me a lot of things. So she was like, don't do that. So pick something else. So then I chose (laughs) business. And I'm like, this is just not for me. I didn't, I could see the usefulness of a business degree, but it wasn't for me. So then the third thing I chose was criminal justice and um, criminal justice department was in what the criminal justice degree was in the sociology department and I loved it. So um, I stuck with 
um, criminal justice. And then I, at the time, thought, oh, I'd go to law school with that degree. So yep. then I, um, I so it was criminal justice. And then I got a political science minor because the, the idea was to um, go to law school. But then I was a person, I was doing so well in the sociology department that I was able to like take a lot of classes because they all seemed to connect for me and I really enjoyed what I was doing and I was doing really well. So I um, took on a, a larger course load and which left me with uh, still money in my scholarship to um, have other classes. So anyway, I ended up doing a double minor. And so I didn't want to graduate early. So I had enough money. I didn't want to graduate early. So I ended up doing a second minor in psychology. Can't go wrong with understanding human behavior. But that's how I got sure. to psychology. I didn't come in thinking um, that I wanted to be a psychologist. So that was the reality of it. But then I looked back at um, my high school yearbook. And in my high school yearbook, you know how they ask you questions. What do you want to be when you grow up? I mm -hmm. said psychologist. But when I came oh, well. to Western, I was thinking pre-dentistry. And as I reflect back on it, I think psychology was somewhere in there. But I remember um, my dad always wanting me to be a doctor. And oh. I think when I got to college, I was like, I got to do what my daddy told me to do. <laughs> and I went into pre-dentistry. But like, for some reason, I circled back and I had forgotten I said that in high school. Um, but it was kind of like I came to this academic space and doing something in the sciences or in medicine. To me, it felt valuable. It felt more valuable than doing some of the other things. And I don't know that I thought of psychology back then as as prestigious or as valuable. Um, so I, I went a different route. I went the route my parents wanted me to take. And then I went the route that I thought uh, society would value more. Um, but I ended up full circle and back to criminal justice with a political science minor and a psychology minor. And that's what I graduated with in my bachelor's degree program. So okay. the, really yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so I, um, during my last semester of my undergrad program, I interned at um, juvenile court here in Kalamazoo. Mm -hmm. And um, during that time, um, my supervisor asked me what it is that I thought I wanted to do after graduation. And I said, well, I could probably do, maybe I'll be a probation officer. Um, but the only thing I don't like about that is I don't want to monitor people. I would like to help people. And I would really like to, I was working with kids at the time. And I said, we go into the schools and we're monitoring their academics and we're checking on how things are going, but I don't get to spend enough time talking with them. And what, what if there's some intervention that can happen, happen other than punishment? And so she said, she looked at me, she said, you sound like you might want to do counseling. And I was like, I might. Um, so I said, but I, I also... Um, at the time had a minor in psychology and I told her I don't want to be a rat person, meaning I didn't I, I thought of human behavior as more complex than conditioning. And so her sure. and I had a conversation about that and she was like, no, that's not the only realm of psychology, behavioral psychology or clinical psychology is not it. You could also consider counseling psychology. 
And mm -hmm. with counseling psychology, it'll allow you to consider context and humanity and all these other pieces that you're talking about, um, race and, and gender and the sociological pieces. And so I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that existed. So I did some research and I ended up applying to the program and I got in. And um, so that's, that's what I did for my master's degree. And I absolutely loved it. Counseling psychology, I, it felt like I landed somewhere that I was supposed to be. Um, and at that time, I made the decision to become a clinician. I didn't think I would be, um, um, at that time, it was like, okay, maybe I could do the probation officer thing as a job while I go to grad school. But I just um, made the decision to go to grad school full time. Gotcha. You know, to me, the thing that's really interesting as I'm listening to your story um, is one that resonates with me is like how many things you tried before you kind of figured out what you wanted to do. Because mm -hmm. um, I definitely had a similar trajectory. Um, but the other thing that resonated with me um, is that as somebody who also actually has a degree in a bachelor's degree in political science, because at once upon a time, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, <laughs> Here's my question that I really want to ask you, because the thing I notice about first your dentistry degree mm -hmm. and then your law degree, mm -hmm. how much of those were really motivated by just wanting to make a lot of money? Because I know that for me, me wanting to be a lawyer was really about wanting to make a lot of money. You know, when I think back, I know the dentistry was about status and money. And the law was about um, a fight for justice. And I think, but before, honestly, before I completely understood justice, right. It was more like, <laughs> it was more like, um, I think doing the right thing. It, it felt like sure. more motivated by that, helping people stay in line, stay orderly, do the right thing. That's kind of all I was thinking about at the time. And I think there were, at that time, images of a few Black women attorneys that I knew. And mm -hmm. not a lot, but there were a couple attorneys that I knew, and they were more into um, civil rights stuff. And so okay. that's, if, at the time, with my limited understanding of, like, justice, and but, but enough to really say, okay, I want to fight the good fight. And I think that's what it was. But the interesting part of it all was, I was also in, um, my bachelor's degree was in criminal justice and I worked at a law firm and which that law firm will remain nameless, but it was a reputable law firm in Kalamazoo. And so, because I knew I wanted to go to law school, I took a, a job there with the idea that I would get a letter and I would learn some things, so on and so forth. And I absolutely hated it. Um, yep. yeah, it was, it was terrible. And so there was a corporate lawyer there and there was a, um, a defense attorney there. And I just saw how grimy things were. Grimy meaning mm -hmm. it wasn't about do the right thing. It wasn't about justice. It was about winning this case so that the nope. that they could win a big settlement. Um, and I remember working on a case that um, was about prisoner brutality. And um, the guard did not harm this prisoner and we knew it. But the evidence was there were gaps in the evidence that gave some doubt and um, could really win the case for us. And we won the case. 
And I was like, I don't know how I can live with myself knowing that it was about winning and losing and not doing the right thing. So that kind of turned me from that um, by the time I graduated undergrad. I was like, no, absolutely not. And, and, And there was some status associated with it and I knew some money would come. Um, but for me at that point, it was about right and wrong and justice. No, I get that. You know, one of the things that I think is really interesting that you said in there is that, you know, when you were thinking about pursuing the law, there was a little, you had a very limited understanding of what that meant. And to me, that resonated with me. And it's actually um, one of the reasons why I wanted to continue when I graduated, because I also have a master's degree in counseling. Okay. And when I graduated, one of the things I specifically, one of the reasons why I chose to actually come back into higher ed is because I thought so much about my experience as uh, a student and how influential my advisors were mm-hmm. on me, uh, both for good, uh, one amazing, and the other not so much. Yeah. And the thing that really struck me is that like, men, coming into college, it seems really odd that we expect students to have such a limited understanding about the world of work, what a career, what a career trajectory looks like. And we expect them to come in day one and be like, all right, what's your paper? What do you want to do with your life? And it's like, dude, I have no idea. Like, I'm still trying to get to the right building. Like, what do you mean? Right, right. What am I life. Yes, yes. And I, I think I'm, I am so appreciative of the journey. Um, and now, you know, in retrospect, hindsight, all of those things, I can look back and see how I was led by my values. I was led by, you know, influential people in my life um, to, to try certain things, to do certain things. And I, and I think those are the right things to do. It just didn't sound like, or it just wasn't a clear path to that, right? It's like, Nobody said, when choosing a career, figure out who you are. Uh, Nobody said, like, what do you value? What are your beliefs? Like, to take all those things in consideration when choosing a career. That happened, but had somebody told me to do all of that stuff, I would have taken some time to figure some of those things out. Um, And luckily, it wasn't about jumping jobs at the time. It was just about majors, and I had space for it for that. Um, but I can imagine that there are people who get degrees and realize that's not who I am. That's not what I value. That's not what I want to do in my life. I don't feel good. You know, um, it's not, I can't be emotionally well doing the work. So those are things that I would talk with young folks about now that I eventually came to, to use, but I didn't, it wasn't a clear path for me. Yeah. One of the things I try to consistently press upon um, the students that I do career coaching appointments with is that like, you know, it is so valuable if you can take, especially the beginning part of your academic career and really just explore some Mm -hmm. things, you know, Mm -hmm. because while it's just as valuable to find the thing that you like, it's also equally as valuable to find the thing that you don't Mm -hmm. like in your own example, it's just kind of like, imagine what it would have been like for you as a person if you didn't actually uh, work at the law firm, right. to then go to law school, get all the way through there, graduate, start working, and then three to six months in, just like, yo, I hate uh-huh. this. Like, at that point, like, dude, it's so much harder to pivot and to start over and figure it out versus it's like, yeah, I tried a, maj- a major or I went on an yeah. internship for a summer. Like, yeah, in 12 weeks, you know what I figured out? I really hate 
working in a cubicle. Yeah. I'm going to drop my major and go do something else. You know, and the other part is, if I think about it, I would have gone to law school. I probably would have gotten a decent law school. I had good grades um, and I would have done well. And I can say that because one of the biggest struggles for me and the challenges was like, how do you do so well at something, but also say that that's not for you? <laughs> and so then it's some, it's more than just what I'm good at that I need to consider when I'm choosing a path, because many of us will be good at a lot of things, but that doesn't yep. mean that that's what you should be doing. It, it brings you no peace. It brings you no joy. Um, it's inconsistent with how you see yourself living your life and it doesn't give you meaning and purpose, but you are killing it. You know, you might be doing very well, but I think I of, often talk to students about their intuition and thinking about mm -hmm. meaning and their values more so than just the the what they're able to achieve and accomplish. Because we sometimes struggle with that. Again, as a person who did well academically most of my life, it's like, you could do anything you want to do. So I'm like, oh, okay, so this is what I should be doing. But that didn't always sit well in my soul. Um, so yeah. I think that was another part of it for me, too, is really making some good hard, good decisions early on. Because once I was in something and doing well at it, it would have been harder for me to get out of it. Totally. And, you know, one of the things I always, I try to tell people is that, like, just because there's something that you like doing or that you're good at doesn't mean you actually have to do it for a career. Like, right. you could just keep that as a hobby. Right, you know, like, right. One of the things that I think that um, capitalism demands of us, yes. especially that is kind of coming up very recently, like, I've seen some memes about people talking about, like, you know, coming out of you know, this uh, social distancing stuff is that like, you should come out of this with like a side hustle or, you know what, something else that you no. can do or some way to <laughs> contribute to capitalism. And it's kind of like, you know, so when you think about that, like, you know, if there's a pressure, like you said, to just be like, well, I'm good at this. Like, I guess I should do this for my career. It's just like, no, why don't you do what just makes you happy? Yeah. And if you just like the law, like there are other ways that you can like, experience joy and like continue to have that in your life you don't actually have to make that your career exactly and and that that takes me to this point like between my um master's degree and my phd so i graduated with my master's degree having loved my master's program and i'm like oh counseling side yep because our degree was terminal so we could go into practice after a master's degree and so yep. i'm thinking yep i'll just practice with my master's degree and I wasn't at that time even considering a PhD. I had mentors in my life. They were like, you need to apply for this PhD program. And I'm like, <laughs> why though? Um, yeah. And um, so I, and these were all three black men, three black men. And uh, I respect, I, I have a lot of regard and respect for black men. Again, my father was telling me what to, what to do. Yep. And then I've got these three black men and I still had some insecurities because I'm like, oh, I got to take the GRE and do well and all of these things. So I said, okay, I'll just apply. I applied to one PhD program. I didn't apply broadly um, because I was like, I'm not quite sure that I want a PhD and, you know, I, I think it wasn't just about lack of confidence. I really didn't know that I wanted to do that. So I think yeah. one of the things that was was interesting for me is that, like, I knew some parts of this, like I could learn, I could do just about anything. But it was really like, okay, I could either go into practice right now, or I could go ahead and get a PhD. The things that 
pushed me to get the PhD was to have the ability to act on systems, right? I was thinking about a further, um, more advanced education. I could get in there and I can really have more influence in the lives of young people. I could, even as a clinician, it wasn't just about doing therapy, but it was about like helping people who look like me have access and all of those things. So I think choosing the PhD was more about my values and giving my life a little bit more meaning. Um, so I could have ended up in academia. I could have gone into all these different realms, um, the education realm, schools, K through 12 schools, like just kind of knowing that I could have great meaning in my life Um, in ways that maybe I would be a little bit more limited with my master's degree. So by the time I made that choice, it was full of my values and full of meaning for me in ways that um, at the time I hadn't considered. Yeah, because the thing about the PhD is that it gives you instant credibility. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. People don't hear anything past the doctor. just like, I'm Dr. Kinlaw. Like, okay, yeah, you said doctor, good enough for me. Here's my problem. It it puts you at the table. And I think at that time, also, I I was a lot more educated about isms. Um, Mostly Mm -hmm. at that time, it was racism and knowing that, like, I need a seat at the table if if I'm going to act and change things systemically. So I was like, oh, yeah, I need to do it this way. And our program in counseling psychology, um, that's a, a, a key aspect of it was around multiculturalism. Um, so it, it, it still is kind of multiculturalism. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit more into equity and, and thinking about things a little bit differently, but that was the foundation of the program. So I was like, oh, yeah, we're going to talk about all those other factors and that impact human behavior so I could really be a bridge to to my community by learning these things and then working towards equity um, and access for for people who look like me what a blessing it is to have good mentors isn't it oh yeah and and when I entered the doctoral program my advisor uh, was a black man he has since passed away but he said this is your job in grad school is to learn everything you can and then be able to translate it so that people from our community have access to the knowledge that um, they weren't able to get. You have access, so you have to to pretty much be a bridge. Um, And so if you ever forget that that's your role here, come back to my office (laughs) and let me remind you. (laughs) So basically, you know, don't sell out. Um, yep. so I had to have that sounding board. I had to, to be grounded in that. And that it's, he was amazing. Yeah. The thing I appreciate about the various mentors that I've had in my wife, probably some of them are going to end up listening to this is that they never actually let you settle. Mm-hmm. And in the moment, it's so uncomfortable because it's like, you'll come and just be like, Hey, look what I did. And you expect that pat on the back of there. It's like, eh. Okay, uh-huh. what else are you going to do? It's like, what do you mean, what else? <laughs> right. I just did this. Look how amazing this is. But looking back, like, no, that's what I needed because they could see that I was not living up my, to my potential. Sure. And if I had stopped there, that wasn't good enough for me. Uh, yeah. Other people, that would have been the peak. But for me, like, no, not enough. You need to go further. Yep. And like, that's what good mentors do for you is that they know when to give you that praise, but they also know when to say like, I mean, that was cute, but you got to do more. Uh-huh. <laughs> I remember after, right after I defended my dissertation and it took me forever to do my dissertation. And it was, 
And he said, so this was, um, I had uh, revisions to submit. So as soon as I did my revisions, he said, okay, so get take a break off, take a break for about a week and then call me because we need to talk about you publishing this. And I was like, are you for real? <laughs> like, I got PTSD from this thing. I am not calling you. <laughs> and he said, if you don't call me, I'll call you. So it's you're right to push you to to do more, to be more, and to go further. And it's exactly what I needed. Yep. I remember when I was in grad school, um, somebody who I would consider to be a mentor now, but probably I didn't at the time then, I wrote something, I submitted, and he, he asked me to come into my office. And it was, permit me for a moment of immodesty here. One of the things about me is that like, I feel very accomplished as a writer. Like I've always felt like my ability to write and be able to com- convey my thoughts and opinions through writing is very good. Uh-huh. And this was the lowest grade I had ever gotten on a paper in my entire life. And he brought me to his office. He's like, listen, when you're pursuing a master's degree, that means that you have to be a master of your craft uh-huh. and also includes writing. Yeah. So do it over. Mm. And ever since then, I have never, like, that's one of the pieces of advice that stuck with me. And I have always put even more effort into my writing since then. Yeah. Having a mentor say, like, like, yeah, like, for somebody else, this may have been an A paper, but for you, this is a D. Yeah. You need to do better. Yeah. Like, okay, you're absolutely right. Thank you for calling me on it. I didn't say that in the moment. I was heated. Uh-huh. But looking back, like, no, he was absolutely right. Yes. And if I doing my best work at all times than what am I even doing here? I love that. I love that. And, and, and I think, you know, um, <clears throat> if I think back on my grad school um, journey, the PhD, I entered into a program that prepared us to be clinicians, but it also was preparing us to be professors. So it was a scientist practitioner. You could be a researcher. You could be a professor. It's just so many things you could do. Um, and that was my preparation. So um, at the time, my mentors were preparing me to be a professor and writing was one of the things, scholarly writing is one of the things that I needed to work on a, a little bit more. And so I was on like research projects doing more um, conceptual writing pieces like that. And I just realized for myself that like, oh, I'm at an impasse because by that time I knew I wanted to do clinical work. I wanted the mm-hmm. experience and I wanted to learn how to write scholarly, but I didn't also want to want to be molded into just doing that. Um, so it was really a challenge to have access to those professors because they were preparing people to be professors. And I felt a, a, a little bit of guilt knowing that what I was probably going to pursue um, is clinical work and doing therapy. Um, so I did that for a couple years and then I had to make that decision like, no, I really want to spend the additional amount of time in my in my training program doing clinical work. So having more practicums and doing more internships. So I did make that decision and I think I disappointed some people, but it came full circle because I think later on I got that feedback like you've been a clinician all along and we just mm-hmm. wanted you to understand that it was important for you to be a scientist practitioner like you're not a haphazard clinician all your stuff needed to be rooted in in theory and it needed to be on point and so at the time I'm like you just want me to be a professor they were like yeah we did and even if you didn't become a professor, this made you a more sound clinician. 
So I was like, oh, it was one of those things. But that was hard because I thought I was disappointing them um, when I didn't want to do these things. But it all kind of came together for me. And so sometimes your mentors are straight up with you and sometimes they're taking you on a journey. But I think at some mm -hmm. point I realized that they all had my best interest at heart. Um, even sometimes there were some interpersonal tensions. I was like, okay, at the end of the day, I, I know these people want me to do well and they want me to accomplish my goals. So sometimes the tough feedback, um, yeah, I left crying, but ultimately it was for my benefit. So let's talk about grad school mm -hmm. a little bit um, and how you thought it was. Because as somebody who went to grad school, like, I personally loved my graduate work. Um, I tell people all the time um, that I thought like grad school was honestly way easier than undergrad, surprisingly enough. And then I realized like, dude, you really got to stop telling people that because you make yourself sound like a huge nerd. But what did you, how did you like grad school? So I also agree my master's program was so much easier than my undergrad um, because it was focused and yep, everything that I learned had practical application for me. And so I think my master's program, I absolutely loved it. So that's why it wasn't so difficult to envision getting a PhD in the same program because I was accustomed to uh, the type of education and, and um, content and modalities that were being used already in the program. My PhD program was a whole different experience. <laughs> I... Um, First two years were mostly coursework. So as a person who had done a lot of coursework, that felt great, right? Like, it's like, yep. I'm taking classes, I'm still learning new things. And, but then it was like, all right, now is you got to come up with your own research project. You got to, you got to do these yep. things. You got to present, you got to, it's like that next level. So that's yep. when it became really hard for me. And I, what became hard is I hadn't faced um, imposter syndrome as heavily. Like it almost felt uh, like when it was time to grow, there are all the insecurities all over again. I'm not supposed yeah. to be here because I don't know how to do this. Coursework was fine because I was a master at learning. Um, mm -hmm. But when it came like, no, new, you got to generate your own ideas. What are you going to do? What research methods are you going to use? Da, 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 da. And I'm just like, oh crap. Like, how do I do this? Um, yeah. And like, the coursework is challenging, but like, I always tell people like grad school is challenging. I wouldn't call it hard. It's challenging in the similar way that you go to the gym and like, you feel the strain of uh -huh. using muscles that you haven't done before, but like, it feels good. Cause it's like, no, like I know how to do this and I'm getting stronger. I'm getting better. Yep. So I could totally understand. Like, yeah. The academic stuff is just like, yeah, this is real great. That's like, right. Oh wait, mm -hmm. uh, search. Uh, what are you talking about now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's when I started to struggle. And, and as I look back at it and on it, and this is another piece I didn't know how to ask for what I needed. And then another part was some of what I needed wasn't fair. So it, it was twofold. I can't blame anybody because I didn't know I didn't know what I needed. I didn't know the type of guidance that I would need for that phase of my journey. So I needed accountability, right? I didn't know how to ask for accountability. So don't just give me, okay, you got to turn in your proposal this semester. Well, what's the start point? What's the end point? Where are the checkpoints? Like, 
when you're in classes, you have a syllabus and it, and the content usually is building over time. And so that I didn't, I didn't know how to do that stuff on my own. I was a student, right? So there were certain things that when it came like comprehensive exams and all of those things that I really struggled. So um, I did them though. I did them and I, they were painful. So that part was painful, but I wrestled more with myself, my identity, my own emotions, more so than it was about the, the, the task being challenging. But when you are having that internal experience, I had a lot of anxiety. I think I was even experiencing some depression because it challenged everything I knew about myself and understood and I didn't feel capable. So those things impacted my ability to function in ways that I was accustomed to. Um, but I cried and wrote. <laughs> I struggled through it, but I never stopped. One, I thought about off oh, for two years. I thought about quitting um, my PhD program, and this was funny. I said to my mom, "So yeah, I think I'm gonna quit," and she said, "Okay." <laughs> and I was like, "My mom is one of those people. I love you no matter what. Um, you're already accomplished yeah. enough." So she said, okay. I was like, okay, thanks for your support kind of thing. And then I thought to myself, like, how do you quit? Like, do I call somebody or do I just not show up anymore? Like, I really was an <laughs> overthinker to the point where I was like, I don't even know how to quit. So let me just keep going. Um, <laughs> and I'm so and I'm so glad I did. But I did think about quitting, um, but I just didn't stop. So I think wrestling with the emotional experience I was having, some psychological symptoms, but I just didn't stop and I got through it and it was hard. Um, so the the perseverance kind of pushed me to be able to do something that I didn't know I was capable of doing and that I didn't find myself liking very much at that, at that point. I didn't like it, um, but that didn't mean I quit. You know, to me, I think that there's such a powerful lesson in there that like, sometimes in life like you don't have to necessarily enjoy everything that you're experiencing right. sometimes the whole lesson is like no you just have to endure this uh -huh. that's it the only way forward is through this thing uh -huh. that is it um, and coming out of the other side you kind of look back and say like yes i grateful for the experience once you kind of get enough distance from it but you also look and say like no that was just purely about endurance like there was no excelling there was just enduring absolutely it absolutely and it took me and there were a couple years after i finished coursework that i was kind of i went rogue is what we call it like i wasn't coming around i still was was on the books i was working on my dissertation but i wasn't really doing it and so it took me i think i finished in eight years it took me eight years to finish my phd and it's like a five six year program but there were a yep. couple years that I just couldn't and I just, yep. I couldn't. And I was full of anxiety and it was just kind of like, but I was avoiding, I did a lot of avoiding. Um, I wouldn't even go to the building. And then my advisor had to call me back in or sign some paperwork. And then I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it. Um, I couldn't tolerate uh, feedback at that time. So I just wasn't well. So I look back on it now and it's like, that's exactly what you needed to do. You needed some space, but at the time it just created a lot of anxiety and it was part of that symptomology for me. I was just avoiding things that I was afraid of, which was my dissertation. But I think yep. um, just some small adjustments. I even switched committees um, at one point, which was a catalyst for me really getting it done. 
Um, and, and I did it. I just kind of faced the fear. The fear was that I couldn't do it. I was afraid that I couldn't do it, that I had been in this program all this time, invested all this money, had student loans, and then got to this point and really couldn't do a good job at what I was doing. Not just even a good job. I couldn't do it. Um, but I had moments where I felt capable of at least opening my computer and typing something or capable of going to the library and just like reading. So I just learned how to do whatever I felt like I could do at the time. And it kind of amounted to a finished product, not in my time frame, because that felt icky to me too, that like, here I am another year or another year, but I was like, okay, what can you do today? And if that was just pulling up and writing a couple sentences, that's what I had to do. So it was, it wasn't a pleasant feeling experience, but it was um, valuable. I think it helped me, um, my doctoral program, it taught me mostly about myself and like, uh, don't get me wrong. I was, a I, I was trained well and I just expected that part, but I did not expect the personal growth. Um, and I, even if I expected personal growth, I didn't expect it to feel so bad. Um, yep. <laughs> but it ultimately, when I look back now, it's exactly what I needed because I'm a whole hell of a lot more fearless, um, now, and I can, I can tolerate failure. I can give myself grace. I know when I'm not well, like all of those things, it was just kind of like, whoa, I learned all of that at that point. I, I figured out what I really value, like through all of those struggles. So, um, I don't regret any of it. I don't think it could have gone any other way. Um, there are some, a couple elements that I think could have been better. Um, but that was outside of my control. That's amazing. So let's take a quick break and then we're going to talk about the intersection of your career and then how you kind of got the K. Okay. So, um, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Okay, cool. I want to let you know that this week's episode of Career-ish is brought to you by the East Asian Studies Department and their upcoming virtual panel discussion with four EAS alumni. Tune in on April 29th at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to watch it live. If you are unable to make it to the live event, a recording of the event will be posted online at a later date. Check career.kzoo.edu for more details. That's career kzoo.edu and one more time that's career.kzoo.edu for more details So at this point of your journey, you've graduated your PhD. Uh, did you immediately start applying to K or start working here or did you go to private practice first? No. So, um, right. So our, the last thing that we do um, in our doctoral program, well, not the last, it kind of flows along with your dissertation is um, a year long internship, APA accredited internship. And so I completed my internship at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. 
And mm -hmm. um, yep. so that is, it was a college counseling center. So that was a, the uh, really, I never envisioned myself at the time. I didn't see myself working in a college counseling center. I saw myself working in a, a federal prison. So that's what I was pursuing is work. I had started working with uh, the criminal um, population, those people who have been convicted of crimes. And so um, I was planning on continuing that work. So in grad school, I was working with sex offenders. I wanted to continue that work. And I landed an internship at a college counseling center. So I had like these two major um, areas of work that I was considering. Um, but my passion was still in working with people who had been um, convicted of crimes. And the reason my passion was there was because I was over punishment. I was like, punishment is not working in the ways that, um, that people think it works. No one is growing. No one is changing. We're not giving people the resources that they need to make different decisions to manage their behavior. So I was still driven by that even after I uh, completed my internship. So I immediately went into that work again. So working with sex offenders. Um, so I did that. And then the, those people who um, have challenges with substances. So those are the two populations I worked with right after grad school. So I worked at Western. Um, they have a, a they had a program at the time and they were contracted with the Department of Corrections to provide treatment for people convicted of sex offenses and people who um, were struggling with addictions. And then, um, so I did that for a couple years part-time while I finished my dissertation. And then I went on to work at KPEP in a residential treatment uh, program for sex offenders. And this is no lie, I love that work. I would still do work with sex offenders, by the way. I didn't leave that work because I didn't like it anymore. I just stopped growing. So I was at an open house. I was at my nephew's open house. This I don't know if I've ever told this story to anybody at K. I was at my nephew's open house. And um, I was at the time helping my nephew find jobs. He had just graduated, I think, with his bachelor's degree. So I put um, the Indeed app on my phone and I put in alerts. Um, so that it would alert me to when there were jobs that met this criteria. So that's how I yeah. heard about the, the counselor position at K College. I wasn't looking for a job. So I read that posting at my nephew's open house and I'm just reading through it. And I went over to my sister and I said, read this. I was like, I said, that's my job. And she was like, what are you talking about? I was like, no, read this. This is my job. And so that's what happened. And I felt so like that's where I'm supposed to be. I applied for the job and I didn't know this at the time, but they had started already interviewing for the job. So my application came in late. Um, they had already oh. interviewed people and they just hadn't found anybody that they wanted. Um, so Pat Ponto told me about this later. She was like, and then my application came through and I, it was a better, I was the best fit for the job at the time. And so um, I got the position there. I leaving KPEP, I also took, um, I think maybe like a, a significant, I, I won't say the amount, but I took a significant cut in pay to come to <laughs> K College from KPEP. But 
there was just something that's why I talk about like intuition and trusting your gut. Um, because I just knew that I needed to leave that job and come over to K and I did that. And I later learned from, um, my supervisor at the time that, um, part of the reason that they hadn't filled the position before I came is that they were interviewing for a clinician, but they also wanted to have somebody in place as, um, she retired. So it was like, oh. you fit for this job, but is there some potential in you being able to grow into the position of director? And that's what that's I know. I had no clue that that's what um, they were screening for, so to speak. It wasn't necessarily the job, but like, does this, can this person, um, can we watch and see if this person could, could, could fill that role as well? So that's what happened. Um, so I was there for a year. And um, at the time, Pat had already made the plan to transition out. And so after that first year, um, she asked me, did I have any interest in becoming director? And I was like, shocked. I was like, whoa, I had never considered myself, even if I was going to work in a college counseling center, I didn't think about administration in that, in that way. And so um, I knew way beforehand that I was going to be taking over um, the counseling center. So about a year and a half beforehand, which then would give me some time to wrap my mind around really what that meant (laughs) to Mm -hmm. be a director of a counseling center. But I didn't consider myself on that journey. Um, And I'm so glad that they saw that because I absolutely think that that was the right space for me, like move, excuse me, moving into, um, or attaching administration to the clinical work that I was already doing for me, that felt it, it felt like the best fit for me and whatever the next step was on my career journey. So that's kind of how I ended up in this role. So now that you are the director of the counseling center, um, how do you think that your experiences, um, specifically the parts of you that uh, relate heavily to advocacy, the things that uh, your uh, prior mentor talked mm-hmm. about, about the importance of building a bridge. Like, how does all that stuff manifest in the work that you're doing now as the director of the counseling center? So one of the pieces that was um, really emphasized in the job posting when I first saw it was... Um, I think it said something about attention or uh, a person who uh, will serve primarily the student of color community or um, heavy, heavily, heavy, heavily emphasize, it heavily emphasized multiculturalism. Uh, I can't remember what the actual wording was and I'll have to look back at what the posting said, but it was somebody who would have a specialty in working with people of color. And so um, I'm like, wow, just wrapping my mind around like not needing to create space for that, but like, that's what I'm being hired to do. Um, So I was just like, well, that's what I want to do. I want to serve PLC communities. And so um, I think about that being a part of the job description. And my expectation was that I was going to come into a system that really fully understood what that meant. When I came though, I realized that part of that was because of some of the racial tension happening at K. 
And mm-hmm. I don't think, and this is not being critical, um, but also being very real, is that I think I was brought in in some ways, and that was specified to be a band aid, um, and to Ooh. to because students were demanding see to 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 have clinicians of color for so to speak. They that was a part of their demands, and I think that. Um, because administration, the college administration was being attacked. I think that was like, yeah, we want to support students. We want them to be well. And then we also need somebody to help calm them down. Um, and, right. and But what they didn't know about me is I'm not into the calming people down. I'm into like absolutely <laughs> helping them be, wi- be well wi- while they advocate for themselves. Um, and yeah. if they want to demonstrate, that's fine. Let's think about the impact of that on your mental health. And can you do it in a way that you can do it well and be well while doing it? So that was my way. Um, Self-care, a part of self-care is fighting for justice. It's part of social um, activism. Those are all in my framework are part of self-care. So I wasn't going to be a Band-Aid, but I also wanted to ensure that while our students were fighting for themselves, that they could be okay and wouldn't have, you know, mental health symptomology that results from it. So that kind of pulled that in for me. That was kind of like that bridge. It's like, I'm here because as a a person of color and I'm not the same, we're not a monolith, but I have a lived experience. I have language. I have an analysis, a framework that I have learned to use in my clinical work that I think creates that safety for students who, students of color, when they come in and talk with me. So I've heard yeah. from students, they've said you're le- you feel less like a therapist and more like an auntie. Now, I'm not telling them what to do, but that's about their experience with me. Um, I'm still using right. principles of psychology, but like I also am a being who embodies and who understands and who has the, the framework um, that's needed for them to feel safe and to be able to fully express themselves. I know what questions to ask. I know when to shut up and not even talk, or I know what matters and doesn't matter at any given point of time from my lived experience, from my training. Um, I know what interventions are white, you know, I know, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and I mostly know how to listen and what to listen for, because they're not always going to say, you know, I'm not well, you know, it's going to manifest differently. Um, so, so I think all of those pieces, by the time I got to K, I knew that, um, and I started just meeting with a bunch of students of color and it blew my mind, the credibility that I was able to have with them in a short period of time. It showed me that there was a need for it. Um, but it also gave me a lot of meaning and it's like, I'm at a, a higher ed institution um, my impressions of K and what I experienced at K was very different. Uh, meaning, as a person who lived in Kalamazoo, K College was elite. People have money. Right. I didn't consider first gen students. I didn't consider, you know, Pell eligible students. I didn't consider m- most of that because I had that um, external perspective and rumors and reputation and all of that stuff. And I'm like, sure. wow, I'm. I'm absolutely supposed to be here. Um, so it kind of created for me, because in my mind, it was it's the intersection. It wasn't just about race. It was about class at that point. 
Yeah. Um, so I think once once I got there, I'm like, uh, and I even say this to people now when they were like, you know, well, what are they so upset about? I'm like, because there's racism. <laughs> like, what do you mean? What are they so upset about? Like, K has racism, K is super woke, and K is da-da-da-da-da. And I'm like, yeah, all of those things are true, and racism still exists, or classism. Well, like, all of that. these things are still very present and real at this institution. And so um, it was, for me, it was like, yeah, I can be of service, to our students. Um, I can help them be well while they're advocating for themselves. And then I can now be at the table to help impact this system and help change this system so that the ways in which the system um, are creating situations and barriers and limiting access, which then impacts their mental health, then I can act on those too. So it's like, helping at a lot of different levels. And I think that's why K works out so well for me. It's like, I can be at the table and then I can also be in the counseling space um, and hold all of that and be able to see how all of those pieces work together. You know, one of the things that um, I think as, and I know that you're gonna agree with me, but as a therapist, it is incredibly powerful um, to have somebody be able to validate your experience. And especially at the intersection of uh, when you start talking about imposter syndrome, I imagine it's incredibly powerful for students of color to be able to sit down with a therapist of color and be like, hey, this is what's going on. And instead of having somebody say like, are you sure that's what that really meant? Or like, I don't know about that, but it's like, oh no, yeah, totally. I can see that is really messed up. And they'd be like, okay, thank you. I know I'm not crazy. Uh -huh. Thank you for actually validating what happened. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and to know the symptoms of imposter syndrome and to say to them, it's not you, it's the system. And it's manifesting yep. in your mental health. It's manifesting in your behavior, but help them understand like their own like locus of control and then their own, like what's the system and what's them and what's the system impacting them and then how to act on that or against that in ways that are within their control. If they aren't yep. within their control, how do you fight for that control? How do you fight? How do you push back? Um, so that then you don't internalize that crap as like you being less than. Because that's not what's happening mm -hmm. here. If, if, if a, a certain lesson is being taught a certain way, like, let's analyze that a little bit. It's not that you can't learn it, because when you're sitting with your friends and you're applying it this way and you're talking about it, you get it. So, yep. like, let's talk about whiteness and all different, you know, and, and like, not about a particular person, not about those people that professor necessarily oppressing you, although some of that may happen, but let's talk about systems and let's talk about norms that have been created and let's talk about what's in your textbooks and language and the hows that have been normed on populations that, that are inconsistent with, what, with, with how you take in information or how you learn or what's, uh, what's organic for you. So it's it's yeah. being able to like explicitly talk about that um, without them dropping out, right? Because <laughs> because we want you to <laughs> stay, we want you to stay because you need to stay for your own. Your those are your goals. Um, 
And so, yeah, we, we are all part of systems and they are influencing our experiences, but that doesn't mean you leave. Totally. And I think that to me, the value of staying is that the problem that you have highlighted and illustrated and brought to light, that isn't going to change if you leave. If you're the person that's saying like, you've identified and uncovered something, you say like, well, this is an issue, but it sucks. I guess I'm going to go somewhere else where I don't have to deal with it. Like, I mean, you can do that. That is an option for you, but eventually somebody else is going to come up against that exact same barrier. And wouldn't it be nice if somebody actually already broke it down for them? And you know what? I, Richard, I use my lived experience with this. I use my experience at K and most people have heard me talk about this, that, um, and I'm not blaming any particular people, but, but I understand tokenism, right? And I understand what happens when a person of color is sometimes hired in an organization that's predominantly white. And then um, mostly what I saw were people of color. And I, most people know I adore Dr. Hill. And I remember Dr. Mm -hmm. Hill, um, he was in charge of assigning clients. And I looked at him one day, I said, Dr. Hill, you do know that I can see white students, right? And he just turned red. And he was like, I didn't mean, I, 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 and I'm like, I know that. And because of the types of work that I was doing, the types of work, the work that I wanted to do, then it just became like a pigeonhole. And I had to like pull yeah. out of that so that I could fight back tokenism. Like whenever there was something going on with students of color, I was called in and I'm like, yeah, but you want me to be a gatekeeper and a band-aid and that's not what I'm doing. And, but at the same time, I wanted to be in those meetings. I needed to be there. I needed to be the voice of the students that I was seeing. So it's almost like, how do you hold um, being tokenized, also fighting tokenism every in every move that you make? Um, because I don't want to get so angry that I don't go to those meetings. Um, because if I'm not there, I'm not gonna hear what I need to hear to help our students. And I'm not gonna be able to be a voice to our, uh, of our students of color if I'm not at those meetings. Um, and so learning how to care for myself and then assert my own power and push back some of those oppressive systems whenever necessary. Um, and that's kind of, it's like, yeah, I see the racism, um, but I'm choosing to stay in it to change it. And um, I would rather be there than outside of it and just speaking about it. I would rather be in it and, and work towards like eliminating it. So we've actually been going a little bit long. So let's pivot mm -hmm. and let's talk a little bit about um, the pandemic that's going on right now. Um, it has been incredibly disruptive for all of us and our campus community um, as we're struggling to figure out what the new normal looks like, um, not being able to be together the way that we typically are. And I'm certain that a lot of students are experiencing a lot of um, anxiety with the uncertainty. Um, students through a wide variety um, and a wide spectrum of their academic career. Um, what are some of the things that you would say to them about things that they can do to kind of find some balance and find some structure and find uh, a little bit of peace of mind as they continue to deal with this ongoing pandemic? So I'll start with the, the first part. It, and the first part is not about doing, it's about being. And it's okay to just be right now. 
<laughs> and what I mean by that is you were talking about um, earlier seeing something or reading something about um, coming out of this time with a business plan and so on and so forth. Yeah. I'm straight up like, it's okay to be surviving right now. Your world, our world 100%. has gotten flipped upside down and like the psyche got to catch up. Um, we mm -hmm. patterns and routines and all of this stuff, every mechanism that we use to be okay, most of that has gotten flipped upside down. Um, whether that's like, this is what I do when I get up in the morning, <laughs> like all that structure and those rituals and all of those things, we're all having to figure out how to do things differently. And we have to have some grace and give ourselves time to try on new things. Um, and then sometimes it's just too much and you just need to sit there. And if that means staring at the yep. wall for an hour, do not be critical of yourself for that. Um, when you can't, when people are like, let's connect on FaceTime, I can't. And that's okay. You know, I think one of the things yeah. that's happening is that people are so like, how do you be okay? Maintain your connections and do all these things. But they're not talking about moderation. Um, they're mm -hmm. not talking to you want to maintain connection. People are reaching out. How are you? I get that. But like, it takes a lot of energy to move from like seeing people every day saying hello to texting four or five people checking in. So that's a lot. And sometimes it's just kind of giving self time to just be and trying on maybe one or two different things, not a day, a week. <laughs> it takes time. Yeah. So um, the things that we know to do to be well, which is to get up um, and uh, stretch, uh, to, to, to breathe and to breathe deeply. We know those things are important um, to sleep, to eat, um, to, to do those things, to care for your body, to clean your body, to brush your teeth, like all of those things. Do those. How about we start with that? Yeah. You know, and it's an accomplishment to maybe change out of your um, daytime pajamas and put on your nighttime pajamas. <laughs> like all of those things. <laughs> I really am being for real because sometimes that stuff feels so hard because, you know, while we are doing distance learning, we're still being expected to show up and to do all of this stuff. And so giving oneself grace to just be, and if you've got time to, to, um, you're working on a project, you got homework to do, don't expect yourself to be able to do it the same way that you did it when you were in classes. Like you could leave class and then maybe um, do an hour of homework. Well, it takes a lot to talk to people over a computer. It takes a lot more energy to do that um, than it does to just have things be organic. So giving oneself grace and don't expect too much of oneself but create some goals that are realistic goals, starting with how can I be okay today? And it may be hour by hour. It might even be minute by minute. So not being overly ambitious in the tasks that we, we do for ourselves. Um, I think the other thing is to write things down, write things down, tasks that you want to accomplish, and then check those things off. Um, but also tasks are like showering and all of those other things, the self-care stuff that you need to do, and then adding on some of the other goals that you might have. So um, I want to paint my baseboards. I've not gotten to that yet, but it's on the list and it just wasn't high priority. At some point, I'll do it. Um, but I'm not holding myself um, 
hostage by it. Like, I'm like, at some point, the opportunity will present itself. Yesterday, I blew off the patio. That's been on my list for two weeks. But like, I just got to it yesterday. And that was one of two things that I did yesterday that didn't take a lot of energy because I did work all day. So I think that's important. Routine is important. Um, but also a buildup to a routine is what should be considered. So it's not like I set this routine for myself today and it's perfect. It's like try out putting these other things um, day by day. So this is my routine. I want to get up and I want to make coffee. Okay, then I did that successfully for one or two days. Now I can add this other thing. Um, things are changing day by day. So a lot of times we can be critical of ourselves when we didn't accomplish the things that we wanted to accomplish the day before. Um, definitely making time for exercise and getting out and moving your body or staying in and moving your body. So going outside is important, especially when the sun is out because your brain needs those vitamins. And when the weather's warm, um, that's really, really helpful. But also if it's doing five jumping jacks in between your classes or whatever, just moving your body, um, that really does do wonders for the chemicals in our brain that kind of help us be well. Um, so I think that's that's kind of where I am. It's more about survival than it is about accomplishment right now. Um, and it's about being kind and giving grace, not just to oneself, but to others as well. Um, people aren't going to show up for you in the ways that they've been able to show up for you before because they're needing to show up for themselves. Um, to survive this. And then they have family members as well. So it's a scary time and it's okay to be scared. Um, but breathing deeply and learning how to just be okay with where you are, knowing that survival is important. And so if folks aren't the best parents right now or the best students right now, um, it's, it's a time of adjustment and we're all in a pandemic together. So I would say a lot of grace Absolutely. and self-compassion. You know, one of the things that you said in there that I really, really liked, it really, really resonated with me. Um, two things actually was one, the importance of writing things mm -hmm. down, but and two, the importance of setting goals, but specifically setting realistic goals. And I know that when I do my coaching, um, when sometimes a client will ask me to um, help them hold them accountable, one of the things I'll say uh, when they first set a goal, I'd kind of just give them the space to do it. And I follow up and like, okay, do you think that you can actually mm -hmm. accomplish this? Because listen, don't actually do it for my benefit. The only person who's actually going to benefit from this is mm -hmm. you. So set a realistic goal. But once it gets down that paper, I am going to hold <laughs> you accountable to it. And, and what's important and about that, really that, what you're saying is like from a psychological perspective, when, we, when you set your goals beyond uh, your capacity, then you're creating this failure narrative. So you got you got all these goals yep. that you can't accomplish. And when you don't accomplish them, you're failing. And, and so yep. you're, you're protecting your mental health by creating realistic, smart goals that you can really identify, this is what I'm going to do. This is, this is the capacity. My capacity matches it. And I can even push myself a little bit. Um, but this is how I'm going to do it. It can be really practical. And this is how I can, where my accountability is. So, you know, all of those smart goals. 
um, it's really important to like, if you've got one goal versus three, if you can really flush that out, you're more likely to be able to accomplish that. And then it gives you the momentum to try on another goal. So I'm not also of the mind that you need to set a million goals at a time, like just try one. Um, and then once you accomplish yeah. that one, that's going to give you some momentum that you need, um, some motivation that you need. And then you can kind of add goals along the way. Absolutely. So those are some of the things that people can do uh, individually. What about some of the services that the counseling centers continue to provide students? I know that uh, you sent an email out about it, but could you talk a little bit about sure. that? Here? So, um, so the best resource, the most accessible resource right now, every day we've been working on getting things posted to our Facebook page. And when I say that I am so grateful for all the mental health folks in the world, they have put together workbooks, they have put together podcasts, they have just been so, and, and we're at a time where there's a lot of sharing right now. So we're adding resources to our webpage daily. Um, so the most accessible thing right now is that resource page that we have on the Counseling Center website. There's a section that's labeled COVID. Um, so that's on our front page, but then also in, in some of the other pages are some additional resources that students can have access to day or night. So these are practical strategies, their videos, their breathing exercises, their podcasts. Um, and then we have also a couple other things. So right now with um, the ways that our laws are set up, we are not able to offer teletherapy across state lines. So we do have clinicians that are working daily. Right now, as far as teletherapy, we are offering it, but we're only able to provide it at this point to students who are residing in Michigan because that's the state of our licensure. Um, there is a lot of um, advocacy work going on right now with professional organizations, mental health organizations, organizations of clinicians, and there's individual clinicians who are advocating for that to change temporarily so that we can better serve our student population. So all the universities across this country are really feeling the same press around, we have students who don't live in this state and we need to continue our care for them. And so um, we've sent those letters to legislators, hopefully to get some type of federal change where, where it wouldn't be a state by state thing, but that like we could all practice across state lines to best serve the students who attended our colleges and universities. So I will say for students who reside in Michigan, they definitely still have access to our services. And I'm hopeful that students outside of Michigan will also have that available. We have our crisis uh, work that's still happening. So we are still on call 24 seven. So if students are having mental health crisis, um, in Michigan, we will be available, but we will also help facilitate students who are outside of Michigan getting the resources that they need. Um, and folks have access to us through calling um, Campus Safety here. There are um, national hotlines and there are national suicide hotlines available as well. Um, so that's available. And then the Steve Fund also has a hotline that's a more so a text line for students to be able to text a clinician of color if they need some emergency mental health care. So that's available also. 
Um, and then, of course, there's 911. If students don't know what to do, who to call, we encourage them to call 911 if they're experiencing a mental health crisis. We are doing a ton of outreach. So we're working with the Intercultural Center to provide a space for students to uh, talk through and talk about um, their lived experiences through COVID. Um, we're working with uh, OSI right now to do Wellness Wednesdays. And so those are for students to access that space through, uh, I think they're either using Microsoft Team or Zoom. So we'll be available for that hour to talk about anxiety and depression and some wellness things as well. Um, I, our counseling center has a relationship group that will still um, be running. So we're looking to meet weekly in that group where people can talk about maintaining connection talk about some of the disruption that has been created in their relationship and learn strategies to, to really connect with and maintain connection in their, their personal relationships. Um, and the list goes on and on. So there's a lot of opportunities for people to remotely be able to connect with our resources and our outreach as well. So we'll be working with, um, I'm talking with you now, <laughs> we'll be working with uh, CIP um, also to, to provide some resources for students and thinking about how to be um, as well as possible during this pandemic. Well, that is a lot. And I am so grateful to you and for the work that you and your staff are doing to continue to uh, work with our students and help them through this incredibly difficult and honestly unprecedented mm -hmm. time. And we want to be available. So this is like, the work that we do here, this is what we want to be doing. We want to be supports um, to our students. We want to help them be as well as they possibly can as they're adjusting to this, this what people call the new norm. Um, I don't know how I feel about that just yet. It's just, uh, <laughs> it's a lot, it's a lot. So we understand the disruption that has been created I will say that I experience our students as resilience. Um, and sometimes when we enter into situations like this, um, it just disrupts that a little bit, but I know what's there and it's just about tapping back into that resilience and then building upon what's already there. So I'm not expecting, um, and maybe because I'm a clinician and I've seen dark spaces with people around their mental health, um, but I think that like our students in general, um, they're pretty resilient, they're pretty capable, they're resourceful, um, they love the practical stuff and they can apply that right away. So I'm really hopeful that some of the things that we're doing will be of benefit and that they'll be able to um, be just fine through this pandemic. And then those who are not just fine, that's okay too, because this is a lot to deal with. And so we're able to accommodate that as well and be a resource to them too. We expect some pathology through all of this as well. So uh, we want to be able to serve students who just need some pointers at being well. And then all of those other students who may have some pathology that, that um, is, it, there's an onset of that through this pandemic. So um, that's what we that's what we're here for. That's what we want to be doing. Awesome. Kilana, this has been an incredible conversation. I know that 
our students are going to uh, take a lot away from it, like I know that I did. And um, I do feel like I knew you a little bit before this, but I definitely feel like <laughs> I know you a whole lot better coming out of it. So I'm not one to talk a lot Thank about you. myself, but like this was helpful for me too to kind of like reflect on some things and um, also to 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 really. Um, I think I hope what I share today can inspire students um, and let them know that it's okay to not be okay, that it's okay to take a lot of different paths to 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 the final resting point. Um, so this has been really helpful for me as well. And I appreciate you asking me to do it. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. And I will talk All with right, you soon. Richard, take care. And welcome back. What a great conversation that was. I listened to it again while I was editing the episode, and I really enjoyed listening back to it, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. You can find and follow the great work that the Counseling Center is doing, including tips on how to manage stress and anxiety during the pandemic, on Facebook at K College Counseling Center, and on their website at counseling.kzoo.edu. Now, this episode has already gone on pretty long, so we're going to wrap up this episode of the show. But before I go, I want to ask you for two quick favors. First, if you are a student listening to this right now, would you please share it with your friends? This podcast is produced with current case students in mind. We realize that we are going to have a lot of listeners that aren't current case students. And while we appreciate each and every listener, we want to make sure that our current students think that this podcast is useful to them. So please share it and let them know about it. Second, would you please rate us and review us and give us five stars on iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Giving us five stars helps us get visibility and make sure we get into the ears of the people who need to hear this the most. Career-ish was produced by the Center for Career and Professional Development at Kalamazoo College. The intro music is a song called Never Forget by Raj, featuring Christopher Sims. The outro music is a song called Friendshippers by Dave Fox. Information on where you can find all of the music included in the show, including the bumper music, can be found in the show notes of this episode. I want to thank you for listening to this episode. Your time is valuable, and it means a lot that you would spend yours here with me. I want to thank the amazing Dr. Kenlana Ferguson for being a guest on the show and for a great conversation. I want to thank my colleagues in the CCPD for helping to produce this show. Until next time, thank you for listening. Stay safe, stay indoors, and stay positive. Take it easy.